0: Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word. You know, as a minister, every now and then you come across a very special and unique passage. And this is one of the most unique passages anywhere in the Bible. One of the greatest, if not the single greatest description of grace anywhere in the Old Testament is the text we have before us this morning. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, if you've never heard of this kind of interesting and somewhat hard to pronounce name, Mephibosheth, you can try that over lunch, see how many times you can say it, Mephibosheth. If you've never heard of this character named Mephibosheth, I trust that you will never forget that name again. Beloved, our scripture reading for this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. These are the very written words of God. And David said, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, "There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet." The king said to him, "Where is he?" And Zebah said to the king, "He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar." Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker of the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and, Mephib- and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, a few days ago I was fiddling around on the uh, genealogical website Ancestry.com. Has anybody here ever gone to Ancestry.com? <laughs> of course Nick Gillum has, he can trace his family back to the Garden of Eden, I'm sure. I think typically you have to be kind of 50 or over once you really get into those genealogical websites where the best one, in my experience, is Ancestry.com. And So I was looking uh, through various family trees, um, many of which probably have too close of connections in some points. Um, (laughs) I am from the south, and um, at any rate, I noticed that inexplicably, inexcusably, my great uncle Lonnie, who I have mentioned before, had not been added to the family tree, which I viewed to be a grave oversight, and this week to say I remedied that fact would be an understatement. We now know exactly where Lonnie was buried and, and married and what he looked like as a young adult. I have all these pictures in there, um, and so that... that Mistake has been remedied, but I've told you about Lonnie before. I haven't mentioned him for about 10 years because when you have favorite illustrations as a minister that you go to over and over again, you know that you wear people out. So I intentionally have not mentioned Lonnie in about 10 years, but we have lots of new faces, and so I think it's time to reacquaint you with Lonnie. As I said, Lonnie was my great uncle. He was a great uncle, if you remember, that I never knew existed. About 20 years ago, I was traveling to Atlanta when I was an RUF campus minister. We had our staff training in Atlanta every December. I was on my way there. And my mom kind of mentioned to me in passing that my grandfather, who I had absolutely loved, I had been so close to, his name was Lee. Lee died in 1988 and his passing impacted me greatly. Love Lee. My mom told me that Lee's youngest brother who was 15 or 16 years younger than Lee, was A, still alive, and B, living in Atlanta. And I'm like, are you kidding me? How is it that you have never told me this before? And she's like, well, I don't know why I didn't tell you, but Lonnie is alive, he's living in Atlanta, and I said, I am going to look him up. Not only did I look him up and find Uncle Lonnie, but I visited him a number of times I took family members to visit Lonnie, and I fell in love with that man. I loved everything about him. At the end of the day, do you know why I became so, um, so committed to honoring this man? Why do you think it was? Because of the love that I had for my grandfather. It was ama- because he looked like him. He sounded like him. To be with Lonnie was like being with Lee. And because of the love that I had for my grandfather, the great love that I had for him, I showed high regard and love for Lonnie. Now, that kind of love and commitment, that kind of dynamic just described, I think is at work in our passage. When David shows love and kindness and compassion to Mephibosheth, but he does so why? He does so for the sake of another. He does so for the sake of his love for whom? For Jonathan. Because David loved Jonathan, David loved Mephibosheth. Because I loved Lee, I love Lonnie. We're gonna see that dynamic work its way out in our text this morning. Like I said. I think we all have a privilege to being here this morning. All of Scripture is God's Word, word, but but some passages kind of stand out more than others. This is one of the standouts, if not the standout, in the entire Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 9. And like most weeks, context, context, context. Context is key. Now. We're not doing an exhaustive uh, treatment on David's life. We have, including today, four more weeks, including today, in the life of David. It'll be about 12 or 13 sermons we'll have done on the life and ministry of David, and then we're going to move to Elijah and Elisha in five weeks. That'll be a real treat as well. Um, But 15 or 20 years have passed since... Two weeks ago, the last sermon I did on David's life, and we lamented and mourned the loss of Saul, if you can remember back two weeks ago. Saul and Jonathan had died during the Valley of Jezreel, and instead of making David happy, that made David distraught and heartbroken, and he lamented the loss of Saul. Okay, well now by 2 Samuel 9, we're going ahead in the future 15 or 20 years after the death of Saul and Jonathan. And David has finally assumed the mantle as king. David is now the king over a unified Israel. Do you remember the situation Israel was in when Saul and Jonathan lost this battle in Jezreel? Does anybody remember? Who here can tell me The foe that defeated Israel, that terrible, cataclysmic battle of the Old Testament that took Jonathan and Saul down. Who defeated them? Does anybody remember? The Philistines. The Philistines were running roughshod over Israel. Well, David has made all that right. David has become the unified king over all of Israel. David has dispatched the Philistines. As Dave said last week, David was the only person capable of of defeating this little group of people that held Jerusalem in its power. Do you remember those people? It's a big trivia question from last week. The Jebusites. David was the only person that could defeat the Jebusites. And so therefore, what what did David make Jerusalem? He made it the capital of Israel. The Philistines have been defeated. David has consolidated all his power, defeated the Jebusites, made it made Jerusalem the capital, and he's expanded the borders of Israel beyond anything previously known. He was universally beloved as king in Israel. It kind of reminds me of what I've read about a man named Dwight D. Eisenhower. His nickname was what? Ike. After the USA entered World War II, Eisenhower rapidly rose through the Army ranks. He led the Allied invasion of North Africa in 1942 and he became the supreme leader of the Allied forces in 1943. He was one of the key reasons that the Allies were able to defeat Nazi Germany. By the end of the war, do you remember what rank he rose to? He became a five-star general, the highest rank possible His leadership during the war made him a national hero. In 1952, he accomplished even more. What happened then? History buffs. He ascended to the office of what? President of the United States. It's hard to imagine anyone more powerful than Ike after World War II having ascended to the presidency of the United States. Well, that's what it was like for David. In 2 Samuel 9, even more so. He had become the most powerful person in the history of Israel. He was in position to do whatever he wanted to do, good or bad. He was the unchallenged king in Israel. Which makes, here's the deal, which makes the opening verses of our chapter this morning all the more shocking, incredibly shocking, given that background. Look with me at verse 1. So just imagine in your mind's eye, David is he, he is, he is seated on the throne, all of Israel is at peace, the land is at rest. He's thinking, what should I do now? Verse 1, David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul so that I can kill him and establish my own dynasty and regime, Okay? Is that not what the text says? No, that's not what the text says? Wait, that's not what David asked? Oh, no. David asked, are there any survivors of the house of Saul so that I may show what? Kindness to them. Like, that is a total non sequitur. From a strategic standpoint, I can't overstate the fact that that made no sense whatsoever. Like, which of you like the Rocky movies? Okay, that's a big shift I just made there, okay? <laughs> How many of you love the Rocky movies? Okay, like, you know, if you're a young 51 like me, you're, you were obsessed with the Rocky movies. I think every, every young man, every boy should like a rite of passage. You know, by the end of Rocky II, they're going to be boxing in front of the screen. You know, that's just kind of the deal. But, you know, does anybody remember Rocky's extremely unique strategy when fighting a variety of opponents. Do you remember his unique, perhaps unprecedented strategy when attempting to defeat his opponent that drove his managers on the ringside crazy? Do you remember what the strategy was? Let his opponent absolutely pummel him, okay? Beat him to within an inch of his life. Like his corner would be screaming at him, what are you doing? He's getting killed. And then Pauly, his uncle, say, no, he's getting mad. Now he can go defeat his foe. It seemed crazy. It worked for Rocky. I'm here to say. From a strategic standpoint, again, I can't overstate the fact that what David does here it makes no sense. It's risky from a human perspective. It's just foolish what he does, and I think we'll understand why in a minute, like, question for you. So um, in an in ancient Near Eastern context, you know, a couple thousand, three thousand years ago, when a new king ascended to the throne from a different family, a new king from a new family What was one of the first orders of business if you ascended to the throne in an ancient Near Eastern context and you're bringing in a new family, a new house, what was one of the first things you would do? One of the first things you would do is seek to liquidate all of the male members of the previous regime because in the ancient Near Eastern king, in the ancient Near Eastern context, kings weren't elected via democracy. Okay. kingship was inherited. So the first thing you would do to establish the legitimacy of your throne and your house, the throne that you wanted to pass along to your son and your grandsons, the first thing you would do is execute every single male member of the previous dynasty you could find. It was just an assumption. That's the way they operated but but curiously not david inexplicably not david david wanted to find someone from saul's family so that he could show kindness to them so interesting to call this unusual would be an understatement do you remember what happened a few chapters before saul had a son who survived so remember saul dies jonathan dies other of Saul's sons die at this epic battle, but some sons survived. There was a son named—this is another trivia question. Do you remember? It's—it it's, rhymes with Mephibosheth. Ishbosheth was another son of Saul who survived. Boy, to say he made David's life miserable and challenged David for the throne. Okay, ultimately David prevailed. So what is he doing, showing kindness to one of Saul's grandsons? Look at verses 2 through 4. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, okay? And so think of Ziba like the steward of Saul's house. He was Saul's chief administrator. So he was caretaking, overseeing, administrating Saul's house since Saul's death, 15 or 20 years before. The king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan Editorial note, he is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Okay, now David knows. Now David knows someone from Saul's house has survived. David now knows that the grandson of Saul is alive and well, to some degree, and he knows exactly where this man is located. Okay? Zeba makes sure to inform David of a key fact. What key, f- not only that there is someone in Saul's house that has still survived, here's where he lives, but what else did he describe about this descendant of Saul? What did he point out? That he's what? Thank you, Mrs. Heath. Crippled in his feet. Why do you think he said that fact? Isn't that just kind of an interesting editorial detail to share? And he's crippled in both of his feet. Question for you. When David asked this question to Ziba, is there someone surviving in Saul's house to whom I can show kindness, how do you think Ziba? interpreted that question. Zeba. I think, thought like kind of wink, wink, nod, nod. Okay, this is just a polite way in the ancient Near East of me finding out where this rival is so that I can take him out, okay? Yeah, let me, you know, does Saul have any children or grandchildren to whom I may show kindness. Zeba's thinking that's a nice way of thinking, saying who should I take out, okay? And so by saying that he's crippled in both feet, What he's saying is, he is ripe for the picking. Here's where he is. He will pose no threat to you whatsoever. Take him out. If you read the rest of 2 Samuel, you'll know that Ziba has a motive. What motive would Ziba have for telling David exactly where Mephibosheth was and that he was lame? What what possible motive could Ziba have? We find out later in 2 Samuel, if Mephibosheth gets taken out, then Ziba thinks he will inherit Saul's estate for himself. So he is loving this question. He's more than happy to rat out Mephibosheth. Here's where he is. He's disabled. Go take him out. Look at verses 5 and 6. Then David sent and brought him this grandson of Saul, this son of Jonathan, who's not yet named. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant." Now, if there would have been a blood pressure monitor on the arm of Mephibosheth, when he's brought before David, it would have gone through the roof. What do you think that Mephibosheth thought was going to happen next? Mephibosheth thought this was it. All my years in the witness protection program (laughs) have come to no good. You know, I am a dead, he calls himself what later in the text, a dead dog. Like, he thought he was dead. He thought it was over. David has brought me up here to publicly execute me and deal with me once and for all. Now, interesting and very relevant to our study. This is, is, the Bible is a living document. It is colorful. It is fascinating. So at this point in the story, extremely relevant, is a verse from 2 Samuel 4 that I just need to read, just one verse, okay, that provides more context and more background information. We find out in 2 Samuel 4.4 how it was that Mephibosheth had become disabled, okay? Just listen, 2 Samuel 4.4, this goes back 15 or 20 years, the narrator of 2 Samuel tells us, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. The boy was five years old when the news about the death of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and the boy's nurse took him and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he, the boy, fell and became lame, and his name was... Mephibosheth. So this story reminds me of images I've seen, tragic images from our border, where you see people, even family members, dropping children over the border wall, some 20, 30, even 40 feet. Have you ever seen some of those images where those men, maybe called coyotes, they are... um, you know, uh, people that are, that, are, that are illegally trying to help people across the border, and they, would, they will take young children and drop them 20, 30, 40 feet, many of whom have gotten injured. Well, something very bad happened to Mephibosheth when he was five years old. The text indicates that Mephibosheth's nursemaid, okay, obviously he's in line for the throne, Mephibosheth is. So he has a caretaker. He has a nursemaid. The nanosecond word comes to her that Saul and Jonathan have been killed. What does the nursemaid do? 2 Samuel 4 says, with haste, she took the boy away. And in her haste, the boy fell. And he had an injury to the degree that he became lame and crippled in both feet. What was she worried about? Why did she get that boy out of there as fast as she could? Because she understood very well the ancient Near Eastern context. She knew that when Saul and Jonathan had been killed, she knew that David had been anointed king, that a new house was on the way, and she inferred from that Mephibosheth is a dead man. So she got him out of Dodge as fast as she could, so fast that he fell and and experienced some kind of catastrophic injury to his feet, and he became lame. It was terrible. Now, our passage says, go back to our passage. So she gets word, Saul and Jonathan are dead. She picks up Mephibosheth, they leave. He incurs an injury. Where does our text say that the nursemaid took Mephibosheth? To an area called what? What does the text say? He's in the house of Maker, son of Amiel, and he goes to a place called Lodabar. What does that mean in the Hebrew, Lodabar? It means no pasture. Okay, a colloquial definition would be nowhere. This was east of the Jordan. This was as desolate a place as you could find. So she took Mephibosheth to nowhere, to hide him away. And now, after all these years, all these years, I'm sure, Mephibosheth lived in paranoia, wondering if the day was ever going to come that there would be a knock on his door indicating he had been identified. Well, that day was here. And he was standing before the united king of Israel. It is over him until we get to verse 7. David said to him, do not fear. Why did he say that? In other words, for you to appreciate how amazing this is, understanding the context, it's over for him and he knows it. David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan." And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. Verse 7 is the center of our passage, literally speaking. Verse 7 is the middle. It's the key. It's the hinge on which everything turns. And there's one word that's the center of the center. One word that governs the entire passage and it's the Hebrew word hesed. Now that word, that word hesed is an interesting word and we don't really have an English word that's equivalent to it. It's one of those Hebrew words that's very difficult to translate into English and if you've ever done a word study on it, it means covenant love, covenant faithfulness, a loyal love, covenant fidelity all of those will do but like when you read in the text in verse 7 that david is seeking to show the kindness of god to mephibosheth it doesn't really translate if you were a hebrew reader you would understand this is a monumental significant word the hesed of god the loyal love the loving kindness the covenant faithfulness the very faithfulness of God wrapped up into one word, Hesed. What covenant is in view here? So when David says to Mephibosheth, I'm showing the Hesed of God to you, that word is connected to covenant. Why was David showing kindness to this grandson of Saul, a potential rival to his house? Why? Hesed. And what is Hesed connected to? Covenant. What covenant's in view? You know this. If you've been here, there was a covenant um, established in 1 Samuel 20 between David and whom? Jonathan. Do you remember the basics of the covenant? Jonathan, who was the crown prince, Jonathan who would be heir to the throne after Saul, knew that God had anointed David. And so when Saul is trying to kill David, what does Jonathan do? Jonathan protects David, helps David. Jonathan cuts a covenant with David, and he says, David, if you'll remember me when you assume the throne, if you promise not to wipe out my house when you assume the throne, I will protect you. So they cut a covenant. Saul's, I'm sorry, Jonathan's commitment, help David protect David, what's David's commitment? I'm not going to cut off the house of Saul when I assume the throne. David's not only honoring that covenant. Oh, buddy, he's going far beyond. Mephibosheth was not aware of any of this. Look at verse eight. Look at how he describes himself. He's not just saying this because of that's what they talked like in the ancient Near East. He believed this was true. Mephibosheth he paid homage and he said, "What? What? He can't." I mean, I'm telling you, there was like you know total disconnect. I mean, he he was like massive. Cognitive dissonance. He can't believe what he's hearing. Verse 8, he paid homage and said, wait, what? What is your servant? Who am I that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? I should be dead. I should be tortured and executed publicly. And yet you're not only sparing my life, you're you're doing all these things. I, I don't get it. Look at verses 9 through 13. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All, can you believe this? He went from being dead to hearing this. All that belonged to Saul and all to his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him because he had a disability. Mephibosheth couldn't do anything. He couldn't contribute at all. So he's going to inherit Saul's estate. He's going to have all these servants that work the land for him. Verse 10. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But if that wasn't enough, there's even more. But see, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, he shall always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. These are 35 people now at the disposal of Mephibosheth. Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table. Like what? like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. Further threats, no problem. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Notice what the narrator, how does he end the narrative? So important. Now, I just want to remind you, the narrator saying he was lame in both his feet. Now, I ask you again, Why did David honor the covenant? I once read a story where Franklin Roosevelt made a speech in Pittsburgh in 1932 advocating restraint and government spending. Four years later, he wanted to go back there to speak in favor of government spending. He asked one of his advisors how he could do this and not be perceived as two-faced and hypocritical. His counselor responded without batting an eye, well, deny you ever made a speech in Pittsburgh in 1932. Why didn't David simply deny or ignore or overlook that any kind of covenant had ever been made? Why in the world allow a rival and this rival's son to survive? It's because of hesed. Again, we can't understand that, that term. What that means, the loyalty, the commitment of that term, this Hesed love of God. To me, this is one of the most significant examples of grace anywhere in the Bible. Who was Mephibosheth? He was the enemy, he was part of Saul's dynasty. And not only was Mephibosheth the enemy, what did he have to offer David? What could he do to help David's house? Nothing. For David to do this for Mephibosheth would only be a drain on the resources of the kingdom. What was it within David's power to do? He could have just assumed all of Saul's estate for himself and had Ziba and Ziba's sons and servants work for him. But no, Mephibosheth was an enemy. Where was he from? Nowhere. How does the narrator describe him? Disabled, disabled, nothing. And what does he get? He gets protected. He gets provided for. And he gets a new position. Sounds a lot like the gospel of Jesus Christ to me. Like Dave said so appropriately, what does grace mean? What does that little acronym mean? God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a phenomenal definition. Mephibosheth, where is he from? Where was he living? When David went to get him. David didn't just send Mephibosheth a map and say, hey, hope you get here. He found him. He brought him back, protected him, provided for him, cared for him. Unbelievable. But if that's not enough, what did he do? He said, I'm going to invite you to sit at my table. How does the passage describe the prerogative of sitting at the king's table? Look at the passage. Who was it that sat at the king's table? It says he would sit at the king's table like whom? One of his sons. Can you believe that Mephibosheth went from being executed, to being adopted into the house of David, adopted into David's family. Honestly, I don't know of a better Old Testament depiction of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, who are we in the story? Who are we in the narrative? You and I, we will not appreciate the fullness, the significance of our salvation. Of what it means to have access to this table, unless you see who you are in the story. Who are we? We are Mephibosheth. We are born into this world at enmity with God, at variance with the Lord, hostile to the gospel. Okay? What does the Bible say? While we were yet what? Sinners. Christ died for us. We were living in the middle of nowhere, objects of his enmity and hostility, and yet in the midst of that, why? Why does God show loving kindness on you and me? And he does. Oh, does he? Why did Jesus reach down and save people like you and me? Why did God do that? Why does God show us grace and mercy and love and care? He does it for Jesus' sake. You know, one of the worst problems we have as Christians is the gift of forgetfulness. And if you're like me, it is easy to lose sight of just how hopeless and helpless you were before Jesus Christ, by his Spirit, reached down by the hand and brought you to himself. You and I were enemies at variance with him. And the Lord Jesus saves us and invites us to his table. Do you see how this pictures the grace of God in Christ Jesus? How all the parts relate to the whole? If you're like me, it is so easy to go in judgy mode and be so hypercritical and play the comparison game. And the reason we do that is because we forget where we once were. We were Mephibosheth. We were hopeless. We were cut off until Jesus Christ, by his grace and mercy, reached down and brought us home and gave us this. And when we eat from this, what is this a picture of? The banquet feast of David's table anticipates this table, which it anticipates the capital T table of the King that we will experience forever and ever and ever and ever. So I'll end with this, like, so when you see people at the office who, who you otherwise would have never interacted with, humanly speaking, what's your motive to reach out with grace and mercy and chesed love? It's because of what Jesus did for you. What's your motive to show graciousness and kindness to people is because you are Mephibosheth and you can't believe that Jesus loves someone like you. Can you believe it, friends, that Jesus Christ saved us and that Jesus Christ loves us with this kind of Hesed love? It's incredible. Amen and amen. Our gracious God and Father, we just don't have the time to mine all the riches of grace from this passage. Father, we thank you that what David did for Mephibosheth in Jesus Christ, you have done so much more for us. Father, do not let us leave this church today until we grapple with the fact that we are Mephibosheth. We are the undeserving beneficiaries of your grace to us in Christ Jesus. Help us to be a people that lives like this. Help us to be a people that can't wait to show this kind of hesed love to other people. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.